Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Criterion Cast, where we discuss the important contemporary and classic films of the Criterion Collection. We're recording this on June 7th, 2020. I'm Jordan Esso, and I'll be your host today for episode 207 as we conclude our series on Roberto Rossellini's War Trilogy, focusing on his 1948 film, Germany, Year Zero, which depicts the shattered city of Berlin following the end of World War II. This is Spine 499. Continuing to track our timeline of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, in June 1945, Germany had entered the Stunde Null, the Zero Hour. Although this is before the Potsdam Agreement in July, the Allies had already agreed to divide Germany into four occupation zones, managed respectively by Soviet Russia, the United States, Britain, and France. The capital city of Berlin, located within the Soviet section, was also microdivided, using the same apportionment. This is well before the blockade and Berlin airlift, and of course, well before the Berlin Wall. This is Berlin in its catastrophic post-war infancy. The effort of denazification has begun, with some emphasis placed on exposing the German people to the reality of Dachau, Belsen, Treblinka, Auschwitz. The Germans are surviving, but they're starving. There is little food, people are foraging for dandelions to eat. There is little to no sanitation, electricity, water, or gas. Houses and apartments are rubble, and they've been burning what is left of their furniture and wood floors just to stay warm. Displaced people are everywhere, from inside and outside of Germany, a sizable percentage of which are orphaned children living in holes on the street and in the woods. There is no government, there is no employment, there is no legitimate currency. It is a cigarette economy, a black market economy, where people search among the ruins for scrap metal to sell, trying not to step on landmines. Tuberculosis and other diseases are running rampant. Women and girls, many of whom have been victims of rape by the Soviet army, turned to prostitution. The rapes continue in large number through 1947, as do the deaths from unsafe abortions. Children are caught up in the sex trade. Hundreds to thousands of people have and are continuing to commit suicide, more men than women. It is an incredibly dark and desperate time. But this is the home of the Nazi regime and the Holocaust. What do we feel about their collective suffering? What did Roberto Rossellini think? And what does Germany Year Zero ask us to consider? Let's meet our roundtable. First, we have Scott Nye down in Los Angeles. Hi, Scott. Howdy. Next, we have David Blakesley in Wyoming, Michigan. Hey, David. Hello. And third, we have Arik Devins in San Francisco, who has a relevant family history that I hope we'll be able to include in today's discussion. Have you been, Arik? Actually, in Berkeley, but uh, I've been, uh, I've been, you know, like everybody else, probably. Can I get a volunteer to summarize the plot of the film? <laughs> you don't want it to be me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, okay, let me take it on. Okay, so um, this is a film about uh, a young boy, uh, Edmund, who's uh, basically managed to survive the, the cataclysm that uh, Jordan just very eloquently led us through. Uh, you know, it's very interesting as I'm sort of reflecting on the words you've just spoken. You know, Rossellini doesn't really front load all of that, but I, uh, you know, I think maybe maybe to his contemporary viewers a lot of that was understood uh but berlin certainly is a city in crisis of the of the most abysmal sort 
Uh, Edmund is the son of a father who's bedridden, ill, uh, kind of on his last legs. He's got an older brother, an older sister. His mother is deceased. And he's basically just making his way through this chaotic, traumatic, abusive world that, through no fault of his own, he's been born into. And we're basically following Edmund through uh, you know, uh, a few days of his life as he's trying to you know, figure out what he can do to support his family, the, the people who mean the most to him. Uh, as I've already said, you know, he's got older relatives who, um, for various reasons, are almost like dependent on him, even though he's the youngest in the family. Uh, to provide their sustenance, the, the the resources are meager, the conditions are are harsh, brutal, unforgiving, and uh, we follow Edmund as he goes through his motions, uh, trying to connect with different people, trying to eke out a little bit of advantage, whether that's in terms of money or uh, you know material goods. Uh, even just relationships, you know, just people who will help him and his loved ones survive another day. That's kind of the essence of the story. It's got the most dismal gut punch of an ending you could almost imagine. Um, maybe I don't need to get a spoilers right off the bat, but it's really just, it's just, it's Rossellini's walk through Berlin. Uh, you know, the, the last two films we've talked about, Rome Open City and Paisan both talk about Italy's experience as they're trying to emerge from under the oppression of the occupying German forces. And now uh, that Italy's been liberated, Rossellini's going to take his camera and crew right up into the you know, belly of the beast, as they say, uh, right into the heart of darkness and see what's happening in Berlin. Uh, this was filmed in 1947. Uh, within two years of the fall of the third Reich uh, before much in the way of reconstruction had really begun to happen. Obviously the, you know, intense hostilities of wartime combat had subsided by this point, but the ruins are there unreconstructed for everybody to see. Uh, it's a brave act just to take a film crew into that kind of chaos. Uh, but that's what he did. And he filmed a story. It's a very brief 75 minutes but it is kind of devastating, kind of eviscerating when you get to the end of it all. <laughs> I mean, to really outline the whole plot thread um, is, yeah, I did that with my wife. She didn't watch it with me. I think she sized it up after a few minutes and said, I think this is a little darker than I need to, to, to immerse myself in. But, yeah, basically the the, the young boy is, is uh, enlisted into kind of um, the most – yeah, kind of harrowing type of work. He's literally out there digging graves and uh, find they find out that he's too young to really do that work. He runs away. Uh, he's accosted by you know, pederastic child molesters. Uh, he's He kind of runs along with some street gangs who are basically ready to mock and abuse him for his youth and his vulnerability, for his lack of street smarts. Uh, he's taken in by older men who, you know, you, you can say for the sake of the movie, they don't go fully into the horrors of child abuse, but, you know, reading between the lines, you can sort of tap into the likelihood that a lot of young men, boys like him experienced, you know, rape and predatory behaviors. Um, and then 
ultimately ending in kind of a, a, a suicidal act of you know, self-abnegation and futility. It's like, uh, yeah, that's a real fun night out of the movies, folks. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a, an adequate summary, but that's kind of the, the through line that I sketched out there. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, there isn't much of a plot here. This mostly is detailing those conditions of life and and the various pitfalls of Edmund trying to make something of it. I'd like to turn to Scott and get his thoughts first, his impressions of this film. Sure. This was one, as with the others that I watched back when the box set came out and uh, actually, like Paisan, hadn't seen since then. Uh, I was really impressed with it the first time I saw it. This time, uh, a little less so. Um, I think its degree of cynicism is appropriate insofar as depicting a group of people who have to rebuild a society but are completely unable to uh, for being so stuck in the past, for being uh, too selfish, for being too uh, single-minded and not looking outside uh, their place in world history, their place in contemporary society, not able to see kind of how they're seeing outside of uh, what they've experienced for the last 10, 15 years. And to that end, uh, like I said, cynicism is sort of appropriate. It's appropriate to depict the German people at that time as completely lost and miserable and too stuck in their ways and too uh, hateful to build anything. Um, but I just found it a little flat, I guess, this time. Uh, there's no nuance to that drama. There's nothing really to develop from there. There's only like the sort of grinding misery of realizing that there's no hope for the future as sort of embodied by uh, the kid at the center of it. And as good as some elements are within that, um, at, at least it's a briefer film than it's not uh, too invested in diving into that because it is a brief concept, I think. I agree with you in that in revisiting this film, I was less taken with it. and But I almost think that its brevity is one of its problems that there's something a little superficial about the way that it tackles the subject matter. And I think you can absorb through some of the supplemental material that Rossellini was spending a lot of time socializing with connected, wealthy, or politically relevant people while he was making the film. And I, I don't want to maybe overemphasize that, but it did kind of stick out to me as maybe possibly a problem why he wasn't more in touch with the internal lives of the people he was trying to put on film here, that there seems to be something like a little less than thorough in its examination, even though I, I like the film and I, I think a lot of things about it are, are really great. I, I wish for, uh, I think something a little bit more profound to be at work here and, I think the film could have a little bit more restraint, but I also think if it had had a longer runtime, maybe some of these beats, like when Edmund apparently has, you know, his first uh, sexual awakening, like find out what that's like, what impact that that has on him when he makes the decision to do what he does with his father, to see that land, I think, in a little bit more honest way. That. I think this film could benefit from a little bit more um, originality. It, it relies upon this armature that has a like two main plot points. 
And I, I think actually, if we remove those altogether and maybe had a more uh, kind of structureless story here, that there'd be something a little bit more truthful about it. What do you think, Arik? You were seeing this for the first time. You already kind of implied that. <laughs> Once again, maybe you're not the guy to to advocate for the films of this box hit. But what did you think of this film? Yeah, I hated this, um, and and I hated it more. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot. I actually have. I, I don't think I've ever taken more notes <laughs> for a, for a conversation about a film on this podcast or any other than I have for this one. I was just. Not only did I hate this film, and and I and I would like to talk about why, um, but I, I've actually kind of rethought my entire feeling about the whole trilogy, and kind of think that what Rossellini's goal was is offensive, um, and and specifically, certainly this film I think is offensive, and what I'm, and I want I do want to acknowledge that first of all, this is a very weird moment to be watching this film in history. Uh, probably not, uh, you know, as uh, David's wife suggested, maybe not what anyone really should be watching right now. Yeah. But um, but beyond that, my this film was made in 1947 and came out in 1948. And it, uh, in my viewing of the film, and we can talk about it, it is presenting the notion that the perpetrators of this war are also in some sense victims of their own perpetration. And that is theoretically, I think an interesting story to tell the idea of saying, Oh, let's go see the devastation of Berlin and how these people are dealing with that. And, and the, the sort of macro level effects on them of what they did. And I think that's, Eventually an interesting story to tell, but to tell that story in 1948 before the story of the actual victims of their perpetration is to me offensive. It, and the movie makes no mention, none of the crimes that you mentioned in your opening. It, it maybe assumes, like David said, that the audience already knows about them, but it does not address them in any way the closest it gets is a i always wish this would end speech from the father who first of all openly acknowledges he did nothing which i think is honest but still true but second of all does not address any specific details there are no specific details and i don't mean like you know really grisly details i mean like no victims of nazi of of nazism are ever mentioned in this film and um and so to try to make me care about these people before I care about the people they murdered, uh, persecuted and murdered is for me, and uh, we can get into my family history, but for me, uh, offensive. And I think uh, looking at the supplements, and thank you as always to Criterion for um, supplements, excellent supplements. I, I think I have, I, you know, I waited to watch all the supplements until I saw the entire trilogy uh, and seeing a couple things, Rossellini's introduction to this film and his explanation of what he was trying to achieve and the Italian uh, prologue and explanation really makes me feel like I, I understand 
better what Rossellini was trying to achieve, and I don't agree with it. I, I think he he discusses how you know he first his first two films are about the tragedy of Italy, and then this film is about the tragedy of Germany. But the tragedy he's talking about is the tragedy of the majority people in those countries, uh, and that again, this is eight years before Night and Fog comes out. I just find it. I just am not here for that at all. And I'm additionally not here for his statement that anytime any society strays from literal Christian morality, they become criminal madness. Right. Mm. I really feel like that statement explains why he doesn't focus on the victims because to him, they're not even people. So, uh, or, or they're, you know, criminal madness or whatever. So I, 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 yeah, I'm not here for this really at all. Um, and, uh, I, I, I think that there are interesting things to discuss about the film and what it attempts to do and how it attempts to do it and where it falls down and where it succeeds. But from the opening moment, I was just completely not, uh, not interested in the story it was trying to tell. And at that point, it's kind of hard to, uh, to, to watch a movie. I also want, by the way, also, uh, we should discuss at some point and we didn't, I don't think we discussed it in, um, uh, Rome open city where I think it's most, uh, pointed, but his association with, of Nazis with gay people is really offensive. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I understand, you know, we're looking back in time or whatever, but not a, not, not a great look for, for Mr. Rossellini. Yeah, it's, all those are really outstanding points, and it's it's hard to sort of suss out what the what the virtues of this film are um, in that context. But I think it's also worth asking: like, is that the appropriate context to look at this film? Um, the answer might be obviously yes, but it's it could possibly be those are not the concerns of this story. It it, it barely talks about World War II. It just invests in the destruction on the ground in this small litany of moments. So David, uh, that's a difficult, mm-hmm. that's a difficult valuation to follow up with, but where do you see this film and how do you, how do you see its value? Yeah. Well, you know, certainly taking all of Arik's, um critiques in, in to consideration here prior to hearing that. And, and I think it's a very valid take on the film. I've been sort of appraising what was Rossellini up to here, and I, and I I kind of wonder at some point was he almost like taking out retaliation or retribution on the Germans, like for as a as a proud Italian, as a Roman, as a person who's uh, watched not only himself but many of his loved ones and his society as a whole really suffer under the the heel of German oppression. Is there uh, a motive on Rossellini's part to just really kind of put German society in a very unflattering and um, humiliating light? And if if so, I think it's very well deserved. The fact that he's focusing on the effect of sort of the the echoes of the Nazi regime and the education that Edmund received, I think that, that that's really an important point. Edmund was brought up as a member of the Hitler Youth. He was a well-trained child uh, brought up under the regime of the Third Reich, taught to obey orders and to be the future of this 
you know, human destiny that they had in mind. And so he, he does things somewhat unquestioningly. He's very subservient to adult authority. He's very pliant in that sense. And you see that the ultimate cost of this education that Edmund has received is that it deprives him of his own life. Uh, not because he was told to kill himself, but because after he sort of followed orders, so to speak, after he did what he was instructed to do by his elders, including his father, his former teacher, the older boys in the street gang, the uh, even the even the hustlers and the you know the the men with money who ripped him off when he was trying to sell some some used goods to make a little bit of cash to support his family. I mean, all of the direction that he received was kind of a dead end, which led to his own self-destruction. So by, by revolving the plot around this, you know, you know, innocence, I guess is always subjective, but he is in some sense, an innocent child only responding to the programming that's been poured into him and uh, it cost him everything and he and there was no future for this boy and i and i think that is the part that does effectively speak to me as an advocate for children who've experienced abuse and neglect and mistreatment of all different sorts i i do feel for edmund i do feel like rossellini's painting a portrait of of just how deeply flawed and misguided and corrupted this society has become that this is the effect that it has on on children who've grown up under its under its care and guidance but i i do also understand that there's a a lot of blind spots in this film uh that the the bigger picture of the crimes of of the nazis the third reich hitlerism and all of that really get sort sort of pushed to the side and and that there's every reason and right to feel offended by that that negligence. Um, the film as it is, I think, is a pretty powerful statement about a society's responsibility to, you know, teach its children well, to guide the young, to provide them an outlet for growth and, um, you know, sort of a, a coming of age that, that allows them to reach their full potential. And uh, he's depicting pretty mercilessly how terrible the failure was of German society uh, to its own young people, even though it promised itself and promoted itself as this kind of vision of a, of a positive future, despite the pains and the sorrows and the struggles. In fact, that little recording of the Hitler speech that Edmund sells in a record you know, halfway through the film talks about, you know, overcoming the adversity and, and pressing forward to a more positive future. And it's, it's, it's the, the darkest, nastiest irony that you can think of to hear those words being spoken amidst the ruins that are depicted at that very moment. Um, so, yeah. So in a, in a certain sense, Rossellini is kind of indulging in his own sense of revenge and, um, I think he has the right to do that, although, again, it's it's going to leave a lot of people unsatisfied because he only leveled his critique in a certain direction and left a lot of other parts unexamined. The fact that it does focus on this 12-year-old boy, as you so eloquently illustrated, is 
in a way, what makes the question more valuable of who is guilty and what are they guilty of? Like, is Edmund responsible for the Nazi regime? He was part of the Hitler youth. His brother was a Wehrmacht soldier who, by his own admission, fought till the very end. And that's why he's scared to even turn his paperwork over to the authorities. He doesn't want to be persecuted for what he's done. He'd rather be in hiding, even though he's not. And he's not what? Being he's persecuted? not persecuted. No, the he's in hiding. He goes in, no, I'm saying the minute he goes in, in the film, the minute he goes in. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Which is confusing to me uh, in a way because this is so early on in the denazification process. Uh, this is before you know the Cold War interests dominated U.S. policy and we were no longer interested in persecuting yeah. Nazis. I'm, I'm unclear as to why it wasn't a problem for him. He says he just did his duty and then he goes in and then he's free to go and goes and get a job. And I, I think that that's, you know, uh, uh, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't mean to derail your point. I no. just, uh, um, uh, I just think that that's an interesting choice by Rossellini. Uh, I also, I think the boy is not in the Hitler youth. I think he had a, a teacher who pushed him towards it, but his father stopped him from joining. I think that's what they're saying, but it was a little confusing. I got that same impression. Yeah. Which that he was, had been instructed by the Hitler youth or not, not, Okay, because the way I remember that scene, this is between Edmund and Mr. Henning, his yes. previous instructor, and yes. Mr. Henning says to him, do you remember when your father wrote that note trying to get you out of the Hitler Youth? Well, he said, I should have pushed more, but I didn't, which to me implied that the, the note worked. It's a, it's a small point, but I thought it was more like I could have gotten you in a lot of trouble, he and your father in a lot of trouble, either for like having that note, but uh, that he had actually been admitted. Um, I don't know. E- Maybe either way, yeah. either way, he was clearly subject to a certain level yes. of brainwashing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, I think at this point it would be helpful. I know David was a little careful not to spoil the, the finale, but I think it, it might be helpful just at this point in the discussion to say, Mr. Henning also encourages Edmund to think about survival of the fittest in a very draconian way that makes Edmund think that he has to kill his father because the the family they're they've been assigned by the housing authority to live with this other group of people and it's it's difficult for everybody to have enough food to have enough electricity and the father is ailing so he can't work the brother's in hiding so he can't work Edmund's too young to work even though he tries and his older sister is sort of dabbling with the the concept of, of turning to prostitution um, that she's she's understandably reluctant to. So no one is bringing income in, and, and the idea is they don't even have enough ration cards because, again, the older brother is just in hiding. So the logical answer is survival of the fittest. Edmund thinks, he absorbs this message and thinks, well, if I just kill dad off, like it'll be one less mouth to feed. And his dad is often saying, hey, wouldn't it be better if I was gone? I just don't have the courage to do it. Um, the head tenant is saying things like, it would be better if you guys were gone. And so Edmund poisons his father with some stolen poison from the hospital. And then at the end of the film, he kills himself. So symbolically, is this also not just the death of a 12-year-old boy? Is this the, the German society sort of, collectively committing suicide through their actions. Does anyone read it that way? 
Well, I, I think it is. It's just kind of like that's that's the harvest that you've yielded. I mean, I, I I do believe that Rossellini is delivering a rebuke to you know German viewers and anybody who sympathizes with the German perspective. I mean, he's just getting it off his chest. You, you bastards! This is what you're doing not only to us, not only to the other societies that you've invaded and ruined, but to your own children. I, I, I really feel like that that sense of, like I've already said, retribution, revenge, retaliation. He's kind of just given the finger to those who are responsible for this. And again, many other crimes not really substantiated or documented here. He's just saying this war, what was it all about? What did you really accomplish other than creating misery and suffering uh, f for so many people, I, I guess I sort of see this this film. It's brevity, uh, Rossellini stepping maybe somewhat tentatively outside of his Italian comfort zone, but still feeling ready to take on the challenge, if you will. Um, you know, he's he he had to make some concessions. He had to make some compromises. Maybe he got you know seventy five minutes worth of material and says, "Hey, I, I gotta I gotta call it." call it now i i can't keep doing this i mean I, this this had to have been a very difficult shoot for him to make and for his crew i'm not i'm not necessarily trying to drum up sympathy or pity or anything like that i'm just looking at the actual task of stepping away from italy going up to berlin filming in those conditions the rawness the 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 atrocity the you know, whatever other obstacles, even just the bureaucratic limitations of having to work. I guess he was a, a guest of the French government, so he, his filming and was was limited to that section of Berlin. I, I don't know enough about how the city was divided up, but you know, he, he probably had again somewhat limited resources and time and and all of that. So we have this kind of flawed artifact, but it's still pretty remarkable and irreplaceable just because of what it captures uh, in the moment that it was created. Yeah. I think that there are three levels at least I'm sure there's more, but uh, the three levels of criticism or three levels of conversation to have here. I think the, that I'm seeing at the moment. And the first is uh, you make the point, Jordan, I think mostly that, that the film follows the 12 year old boy and, and what is that trying to say? So the first level is, is it a reasonable, responsible thing and whatever he can do whatever he wants, but do I, um, am I interested in a story centering a 12 year old boy who was the victim of his own society's, uh, um, teaching and, and, uh, all those things. Is it right to center the story on the, uh, perpetrators? That's question number one. Question number two, is the film actually trying to condemn all of the things that you might believe it's trying to condemn and that opera in the, um, I don't probably not saying his last name, right? But I think it's Adriano opera, the, um, the, uh, sort of visual essay guy for these films that he suggests the film is trying to condemn. Is it actually doing that? And then the third question is, is it doing a good job of doing that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, um, I've already kind of given my feelings on the centering, uh, I'm not completely convinced on all of the condemnation, but I'm willing to entertain that that idea. I think a lot of it is, um, shall we say, heavily implied at best. But if we get to the third question here, do I think it's doing a good job of doing that condemnation? I have to say 
no in a lot of areas, uh, not all areas, some areas it's doing a good job, but a lot of the stuff you're talking about to me is undercut in the movie by the fact that, as I said, the, the older son who, um, you know, fought to the end, uh, first of all, uh, you know, is it's never challenged by anyone in the film, whether or not he, he, um, was just doing his duty. They maybe at one point say, Oh, you must've done something bad. But then he said, no, I wasn't. And they're like, okay. Um, but also that's kind of borne out by the fact that he goes into the, to the um, office when he finally gets the courage to, to stand up and say, I'm, you know, I'm a soldier. And then they just say, you're free. And he's like, yay. And it's a moment of triumph in a sense in this film. And maybe that's, I'm sure that's just being used for narrative effect to underscore the, tragedy that, that comes directly after that. But you know, these, it, it's a very short film. There's not a lot going on. These little things kind of matter a lot. And I feel like th- that and the, some of the other, um, sort of notes of the film beats of the film don't necessarily work to, um, to support, uh, Rossellini's condemnation. If that's what he's doing. Uh, I, I don't see the I have to admit, I don't see the revenge angle that you see, David. I'm not saying you're in any way wrong. I just, I, I don't know that I see that as strongly, but I, I can see some of the condemnation on the very edges. I just feel like, again, it's a inward looking condemnation. It's like, it's like we're, we're saying, oh, look, this was bad for you. Not this was bad for everyone else that you did this to. Um, and you get into the question of like, you know, I, I found it hard to even suggest who the people this movie is focusing on are, because if we say, oh, the Germans, well, the victims were also Germans. So how do you, you know, how do you define even who the people are, if that makes sense? I'm a little all over the place at this point, but um, I just <laughs> well, don't. Yeah, I don't know. I would I would say there is an aspect of I think you brought up there's three conversations, right? And I think the second one was, you know, is it trying to have this conversation with who is responsible and who is guilty. Uh, those aren't your words, those are mine, but I think that was the idea. There, There's also a way in which maybe this film isn't trying to smuggle a message at all, that there is something innately neutral about what Rossellini is doing here. Yeah, but then I don't fuck with that at all. <laughs> right, exactly. So then the, then, the, then the problem from your point of view becomes, well, it has a responsibility to to carry a message and not just be in 1948. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but in the, and I don't think it would be useful to have been a conversation about neorealism, uh, in, in too deep uh, a way, but it is a neorealist idea that things are to be represented as aspects of reality, not as, I am specifically contradicts that about this film, right? He says that his idea here was to create a, I forget the words he used, but he's like, no, I was trying to create an artistic truth. He says that about this film. And it's, it is difficult to lean on Rossellini, Rossellini's words too much, but in terms of new realism, I think he's more often quoted as saying like the, the reality of something matters more, right? That the truth, artistic truth or whatever. Right. Um, not, not what, yeah, but that's kind of a weird vibe, right? Like that's, that's a complicated thing to think about. It's interesting. It is complicated. And I would say in Rossellini's position at the time, yeah. it's pretty controversial. I would say contemporaneous to his creation of this thing that like what now you're going to focus on the Germans like that, that already feels like a pretty difficult argument to have. So he, he was probably very careful with his words and I yep. know he had trouble getting funding because yep. no one was interested in doing this movie. Um, it was not I, super well received either. <laughs> and it's sort of part of this film movement 
at the time, I don't think it's considered canonical with, but the, the rubble films that the German film industry was making yeah. that, that tried to address, you know, uh, collective guilt and the reality as it was on the ground in this dilapidated environment where services had collapsed, government had collapsed, and it was uh, whether or not these people deserve to live this way, this is what was happening. And as a historical document, it's kind of fascinating. And you, you see this in some other films, um, but the, the, the documentary quality of the footage of what this city looked like, it is much more likely to get a story of the nature in which you're describing, Arik. This is a much less likely story to be told. So just even as a historical document, I think it's fascinating to consider that that's valuable. Well, I, I agree with you that in from a contemporary lens, it's a more unlikely story to get. But I don't think that at the time, it, I think, I think you know, this is one of those cases where when he made it matters a lot to me. I, I, like I said, I think that the idea of that story is an interesting one, um, if done perhaps more sensitively than he did. And maybe I would never be the person to enjoy that no matter what. I don't know. But I don't know that at this moment in time when, as far as I could tell from my own research, there was not a lot of films focused yet on those other on the stories of the victims there was again as you point out the trumer film were about non-jewish non-victim german um uh you know um guilt and reckoning and those kinds of things but that is still centering the story on the perpetrators and my point is that i don't think i think from my understanding it you know night and fog in 56 is one of the first films to completely focus on the the victims of atrocities as opposed to the perpetrators. And so for this to have this incredible footage that is to David's point, I mean, even if I, even as much as I hate this film, I have to completely acknowledge that it is a, um, we are incredibly lucky that the footage exists. Right. But, um, but, uh, but to, to, to choose this moment in time, to center the, the, the perpetrators feels irresponsible to me um, in a way that it wouldn't have in a different time because no one was telling that story. Yeah. I think also um, this is something I just got to thinking about. So it's a pretty underdeveloped idea perhaps, but um, <laughs> always fun here. Always welcome yeah, here. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> there's a sense, I think with a lot of post-war films and this is true of American films as well. I really like um, a lot of the, world with a few American films that could shoot in kind of the post-war rubble in Europe. Um, they're really interesting films in a lot of ways, but as with Rossellini's films, there is this central denial about the Holocaust and about the victims of Nazism. Um, and I wonder the extent to which that's a sense of not collective denial as such, but a, a hesitancy to confront it when most of um, this is a problematic term, but what is, typically termed Western society, uh, went so far to ignore the both the threat of Nazism and its ramping up and the direct effects of the Holocaust while it was happening. And I wonder um, the extent to which Rossellini and a lot of other Western filmmakers were not consciously ignoring it, but just kind of subconsciously not ready to tackle their own if not complicity, then a sense of guilt over not recognizing or not admitting what was happening. Yeah. On that mm -hmm. note, like the, the first German prime minister to say anything 
uh, the first West German prime minister to say anything about um, the Holocaust was in like the 60s. And, you know, my, my wife was born and raised in Germany and her um, German mother, um, and I have talked about this, you know, in, in more modern generations, uh, my wife was raised with continuing education about what happened. They analyze the speeches of Hitler. They learn how to, um, they do a much better job teaching their children how to be critical thinkers and, than we do oftentimes and, and teach them about the power of, um, the hypnotic power of rhetoric and all of these things. But that started much, much, much later. And it, in fact, it was only in East Germany where, they viewed themselves as victims as well because of their communism, where memorials were put up, where where um, crimes were discussed. Like in West Germany, they basically closed their eyes for the most part and just didn't talk or think about this for literal decades. And um, and 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 only much much later did they start to and don't get me started on Austria. But they they uh, they didn't start to to examine this from that perspective for decades. So again, to see that moment of time, it's just very hard for me to watch this and care at all about Edmund, who to David's point is, I agree, an innocent and is, um, uh, you know, the product of all of this. And it, it's a, you know, a tragic story or whatever. I mean, it is, but, but I just don't care because it, of whose story is being told at what moment in time, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think Rossellini's bias. He's a man of culture. He's a man of the arts and letters and the humanities and all of that. And and you know, from a sort of a, a cultural lens of that orientation, let's just say, you know, he's he's looking at the prouder aspects of German history. This this great civilization that's that's given birth to. You know so many significant accomplishments in 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 all of the you know the humanities, all all of the arts and culture, literature, the a lot psychology. Of those were Jewish, just going to say uh, that. that that is true. But his his blind spot is that you know look at look at the disgrace that the German culture has been dragged down into uh, from a you know you know more purely political lens you know he's yeah. going to be sympathizing more with the political left whether that's overt communism socialism whatever and he's going to see the third reich and nazis as the adversary and and scoring political points i guess i'll go back to my revenge retribution thing it's like you guys screwed up you guys lost and and you've dragged this entire society down into misery and ruin pursuing your own folly and and uh, shame on you I, I i really do i i guess i do sense that kind of a you know up yours type of message coming through here because you know again if you want to really inflict a sort of a psychological or emotional wound on your opponent you know as sad and pathetic as it is to say it's not about all the you know, innocent Jews and other people that you killed in your concentration camps. It's like you, you messed up your own family. You screwed up your own children. You, you brought devastation to your own cities. That's going to stick worse because it's like more personal that way. And, and I mean, again, it's the, the scale is completely maladjusted. I'll, I'll absolutely acknowledge that. But it feels to me like that's that's kind of where Rossellini is going here. It's like he's trying to shove in the you know, remnants of whoever might be apologists or still sympathetic to the old Nazi regime and say, 
you guys own this. You guys own the suicide of, of a, of a boy and, and all the implications that come with that. And, uh, you know, you're going to have to deal with that. And again, marginalizing and sidestepping and maybe even just blatantly ignoring the other sufferings from the, the communities that don't fit into the cultural mainstream or the aristocracy of who should be running Europe, who should be in charge or who should be setting the tone, establishing the rules. You know, Rossellini is a man of his times. I, I, I think that is something to be reckoned with. Um, sort of like we said in the previous episodes, he's, he's pushing the argument forward, but, but maybe not as across all levels as, as we would wish. So, uh, it, it's a flawed work. I, I won't, I won't put the masterpiece label on this one because it is, it, it feels kind of like a minor conclusion to the trilogy overall. I, I kind of look at it now as Paisan is kind of like the high point for me, uh, of these three films, but this is a, an interesting arc that he's pursued here to take the story into, you know, into the heart of Berlin and, uh, and tell what he can, uh, let's just not, you know, draw the mistaken conclusion that this is, you know, this is kind of the, the, the full scope of, of what needs to be said about this era of German and European history. I also think another element of the film being very much of its time and kind of blind in some ways that, uh, is less, I think, in the conversation when we talk about this period now is that especially in Europe and especially Berlin was perceived to be this great city before Nazism and was like such a hub of artistic and cultural life in Europe. And this is something that Stefan Zweig also wrote about, you know, at least implicitly in a lot of his works is the way that Nazism kind of felled that development. So especially the context David often talks about Rossellini and as a kind of artistic man of letters, uh, that sense of loss of, uh, what was once, or at least for a very brief period, German cultural history uh, is considerable and I think worth exploring. I'm not sure the film is totally successful there, but I think that some of where the shaming comes from as well. Yeah. Yeah. When when Trevor and I were doing our little box set about the, the silent films of Joseph von Sternberg, there's a interview clip with von Sternberg from like 68 or something like that, like right the year before he died. And he was talking about the, you know, the wonders of being in Berlin in 1930, 31, 32, when he was over there filming the blue angel and what a remarkable environment that was. So I just, I just kind of conjured that thought. I thought I'd just make the connection there about how drastically life, you know, descended into this, you know, pit of misery, uh, after kind of achieving this kind of remarkable high point, and of course, a lot of the creative talent fled or was exterminated. Uh, but it is, you know, it is something to think about in terms of just putting all of that history into context. And connected to that, I guess Marlena Dietrich was a primary source for the inspiration of this story, like her talking to Rossellini and his co-writers about her experiences of Berlin. But she wasn't in Berlin during the war and certainly can't be considered a commoner. Um, so that I think is another maybe problem or wrinkle here to, to consider is that he didn't really, Rossellini did not really have access to these people. 
I do not think. And um, his dedication to the film is to his son. We haven't talked about this yet, but... <laughs> yeah. uh, well, there's no consensus about what exactly that means in terms of the germination of this story. But his nine-year-old son had died of appendicitis uh, or complications due to appendicitis while Rossellini was editing Paisan. And then Rossellini makes this story about a young boy, admittedly a little older than his son, and admittedly not that connected to his son. But there's then he dedicates the film to it. There is something about the vulnerability of a child that I think is being driven by this this personal loss of Rossellini's, and maybe maybe why the film does not take on some of the larger, broader issues and is so focused on the experience of one person potentially a victim of the Nazi regime that if, if, if I permit to, to sort of stretch this argument a little bit and say that in the post-war Italian medical system, maybe Rossellini's son uh, would have survived if he'd been able to get better treatment that it had been a warm torn country. And in some way, maybe there is a at arm's length blame to be placed at the Nazis for Rossellini's son's death. Well, I do think that it is worth noting that he not only did he dedicate the film to his son, but he apparently also cast the, uh, I don't see the resemblance in the photos they show, but he apparently cast the boy he cast to play Edmund because he resembled his own son, which I do think is interesting. Um, you know, that that's a very um, interesting take on things, and I want to think about it more before i respond to it but uh, but thank you jordan for that the i i think i'm realizing that part of my problem here though is with as i said this actually has made me cast my eye back to the other two films and kind of update my reaction to them and part of my problem here is that and i think i even discussed this when we were talking about maybe rome open city is that he views the the story as also a tragedy for italy because they were invaded by germany but that invasion lasted a very short amount of time uh, comparatively and was the result of them having been allies with Germany and losing and turning away from Germany. So, I, you know, I don't, you know, the, 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 the Italians were also perpetrators of world war two. So I, I, I guess I have less, I have a more complicated relationship to the idea of Italian victimness than Rossellini does, which is not surprising. <laughs> And to bring it up again, Rossellini did have some relationship with fascists in the film industry. He was industry. like best friends with Vittorio Mussolini, Benito's son. <laughs> right, right. He was absolutely well, part of the fascist film industry of Italy. Right, and he got out while the getting was good, and it, he kind 100%. of switched, switched yeah. loyalties. Very yeah, th- th- this is the problematic aspect of viewing, um, you know, wartime propaganda, or in this case, maybe post-war propaganda, from the from the perspective of perpetrators who are now feeling some sense of remorse <laughs> and self pity <laughs> or, or victimized, they, exactly, yeah, um, and yet it yeah. it is a voice that needs to be reckoned with. I mean, you know, Rossellini, yeah, right. There, the 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 equation of complicity versus you know um, justifiable deniability is is kind of a hard one you'd have to really do some deep studies and research but yeah i i i I endorse your sense of offense and the inadequacy of of engagement 
that that you're raising here, Arik, and and throughout this whole trilogy, I know, <laughs> I know there have been some <laughs> some uh, comments from <laughs> listeners who kind of um, you know would like to see more of a harmonious consensus. But I actually really value this kind of friction, this dialogue that that really does wrestle with the content and doesn't just expect some kind of you know, rubber stamp of endorsement because these are great masterpieces of world cinema, you know, and it's Criterion Spine 500 and, and it's the, uh, you know, the gateway into neorealism and Rossellini who, who did amazing things. I mean, he really was a yes. very remarkable, uh, you know, a genius even, a filmmaker. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean everything just has to go down smooth or, or is, is, is um, immune from from critical analysis and dissection even if you will so well allow me to similarly to scott uh, put a little bit of a (laughs) half-baked comment out there (laughs) i can't let him stand alone on his half-bakedness uh but um uh you know criterion put out a statement the other day uh, in response to the um the what's going on with black lives matter and and the the murder of george floyd and and the a murder of a crazy horrific amount of black men and women and other people by the police and in their i thought it was a very interesting statement um and in their statement they mention that they are having internal conversations about um you know what their level of responsibility is in terms of creating this quote unquote new canon or or what voices they choose to promote and who they've set up as being important and what they've set up as being important and i think um I think that's awesome, and I think they hopefully that means we get more films from um, directors like Osman Sembe. But um, ad- additionally, uh, I think it's to your point about you know people who want harmonious whatever whatever. Um, I would hope, and I would have suspect that if we got anyone from Criterion on the line, they would absolutely encourage um, this kind of a discussion and to say that this is a film worth reckoning with, as I think maybe Jordan said, I, I, I think that that's exactly right. And it doesn't mean that we all have to come out on the same side. And I do not believe that a hundred percent of the movies in the Criterion collection should be everyone's favorite film or that everyone should like them or everyone should agree with them. I think that hopefully all of them challenge you in some way. Um, and I'm not even sure that that's true, but you know, these are morally complex works, and if they're not complex, then they wouldn't warrant this level of discussion. There wouldn't be people who disagree with them. Like that's kind of inherent to not only the thing with these films, but with the Criterion Collection in general. If there's no, if if there's no like daring in the film or nothing at risk, that means that everyone would agree, and like then they're just kind of flat and not interesting. And there's no, yeah, there's no nuance there. Yeah, this debate is the value of this film to me, Arik, really. You know, to have this conversation with you is is really why this film is interesting uh, for me. Um, it, it shouldn't exist on its own merits alone. I think I think this film is... Uh, the fact that it's challenging, the fact that it's easy to hate is is kind of almost part of its value to me. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting... I mean, I you know, obviously I enjoy talking to the two of you, or three of you, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But, um, but yeah, it's, you know, I, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm an, you know, I'm probably in some high percentage. I mean, I think we all knew I was going to hate this film before I watched it to some degree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the minute I knew what it was about, 
at any level. I was like, oh, that's probably not going to be for me. <laughs> um, you know. Well, and Rossellini, you know, he's basically pursuing some ambitions here. He, he, you know, I mean, he's taking on really heavy subject matter. I mean, think about, uh, and I don't know, maybe there is, maybe it's out there somewhere, but, you know, films that were made in, you know, Benghazi or Baghdad in the aftermath of the uh, American invasion of Iraq or, or in, uh, you know, in Afghanistan or other kind of war zones, what's happening down in Yemen now. I mean, I would, I would love to see some kind of, you know, uh, dramatized with, you know, documentary interludes of some of these horrible situations that are happening in today's world in our very recent past by filmmakers who have the the courage and the resources and the artistic vision to say let me tell you this story let me put the lives that have been shattered on film or at least some representation of them now coming out of those incredibly you know tragic and and god awful situations there almost inevitably will be some d degree of political bias <laughs> and and attitude and resentment and protest and and you know all of the emotions that come with having survived a situation like that so you know un until maybe we've lived ourselves through those types of circumstances and you know my my prayer is that none of us would have to do that but if that's our fate our destiny and and then there's artistic uh, creators who can capture those stories maybe we have to cut a little bit of slack to say okay you're you're viewing it from a very subjective uh point of view but i still want to hear what you have to say and and so yeah i guess i i kind of look at it at that level but but yeah and then to the the larger degree of of who sets the canon and you know the auteur theory and the names and the reputations yeah, obviously, you know, we're in an era where um, media is, is accessible. You know, capturing video images is much more technologically feasible and, and low budget than it was when you had to get a film crew together and wheel these heavy cameras around. I mean, yeah, I don't want to go off too much on a tangent there, but you know, there there are amazing stories waiting to be told in in today's world. This is a this is a relic of a of a of a chapter of of global history that is you know something that that we should try to understand i mean i i think our society teeters on the brink of this type of devastation much closer than we comfortably want to let ourselves imagine um and so yeah hopefully the, i think there's lessons to be learned both in in the story that's proactively told as well as the things that are maybe not noticed by the people who are on the ground at the time, but by, by looking into it and thinking about it, it's like, you know, what about this angle? What about those people that don't even get mentioned? What about them? Is their story something that we should try to, you know, tunnel into the past and try to bring to the forefront? And there's certainly been many, many tellings of, of various chapters of World War II uh, over the years. But this is... This is original source material, and I think in that sense it's 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 irreplaceable. It's valuable. Just don't take it as the the beginning and end of the story. You know, there's a lot more to be told. And hindsight's an interesting thing to also throw in there. You know, in terms of a half baked idea, this film is sort of like a half baked idea, right? I mean, even though we knew things about the Holocaust at that time, in hindsight, we know 
a lot more. Like when Night and Fog came out, it's important to say like that film was welcomed and critically praised. This film did not have a very good critical reception, but even if it had tried to broaden, I think, its scope, we will never know who knew what at what point, but we can say that in 1947, people were still trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Uh, worth noting that while I not listen, I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but um, Night and Fog did have a pretty good reception, but the French forced him to censor it to avoid any uh, complicity. The Germans tried to get him to censor it. It was not shown in certain parts of Germany and was, um, uh, you know, uh, had a complicated history. So I, I agree with what you're saying, and, and, and I don't want to completely undercut it, but I do want to um, yeah, mention that. Yeah, important point. Uh, the, the thing I will say here, it... I stand by everything I said, <laughs> which is a good thing, I guess. But um, but I do want to mention that I, I do think that it it's something that I struggle with um, personally, which is in trying to find um, compassion for or empathy for the um, the concept of the kind of victims that this film is trying to talk about. The, the the idea that this boy has been failed by his society, the idea that that you know some people say, oh, the, you know, the first people the Nazis, you know, invaded was their own country, right? Um, this idea, I find, I'm very, I very much struggle with that, um, you know, because of my own much alluded to in this episode, family history, the very, very, very short version. My grandparents were Holocaust refugees, and my great grandparents were Holocaust victims. Um, I do think it's healthy for me personally, me to try to find that understanding. So I still think that this is a very flawed film. I still think that I do not like it. I still think that it is a failure in most of the ways it is trying to do it. But, uh, you know, like I said, I stand by everything I said, but I think some version of this is valuable in addition to, as David said, I completely agree that this is a document of what the world was in that place at that time is inherently valuable just as a almost, I mean, it's not a documentary, but in the ways that it is a documentary. But I do think that an examination of, you know, there is a version of this that could have um, acknowledged more what it was doing, if that makes sense. Like, you know, you don't have to, every movie doesn't have to be about any one group. You can, but this movie could have leaned in a little bit to sort of acknowledge acknowledge what had happened, but also focus on what it wanted to focus on. And I think that that could have been a really powerful um, way to grow the conversation instead of, instead of what this does, which is kind of ignore most of the conversation and focus only on one, in my opinion, kind of com um, problematic as the kids say um, part. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a population in Germany, roughly of like 80 million people at this yeah. time. So there's lots of, there's plenty of room for individual stories. Yeah. But I, I totally understand what you're saying in terms of like providing some context at this point um, seemed critically valuable. Like I mentioned hindsight and in hindsight, it's really easy to take um, for granted what we understand and have reached consensus on about the Nazi regime. But at right. that time, it was still a matter of reaching consensus of what had this monstrosity managed to accomplish and 
you know, w- there are certain factions that still are Holocaust deniers now. Yeah, oh, at, yeah. the t- at the time, there was a lot more interest in saying that that wasn't what happened. Um, so that puts a much heavier burden on a film like this to to have addressed that. So I totally get that. It feels a little childish at this point to then say like, well, do we want to rank these films? Do we want to talk about the, the, the packaging of the box set? But is there any interest in, is there any interest in taking that very sharp turn and, and talking about, you know, as a group of films, taking a little bit further step back. And David has probably already done this a little bit and, and saying like this, this is a, a, a trilogy for some reason, some reason these films have been grouped together and it's probably about the time that they were made in, um, and that they do all address issues of occupation related to World War II. They don't have a lot in common um, once you really take a close look at them, but they've been grouped for us. So what do we think of that? How would we compare them to each other at this point? I mean, I'd just go strictly in the order of the box that I think Rome, the Open City is the best. Paisan's quite good, and this is a little wanting. That would be my ranking as well, uh, I think. <laughs> careful listeners of this program have probably uh, not failed to notice that my <laughs> appreciation of these films has diminished as we've gone on. Uh, so, yeah, I would feel the same way. Um, I would, For me, I would say I, I really liked Rome Open City. I didn't like Paisan and I hated Germany Year Zero. That would probably be my... But I use the old Netflix five stars and what they mean system for when I do the, the, the ranking aspects of this. Um I, I I do want to call out that I think as as usual the 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 criterion side of this is phenomenal. I mean they you know the boxism is very nice. The um the the you know you always can want more special features, but they there's a lot of really good information there about what we, what you know what was going on with Rossellini and what he was trying to accomplish and all those kind of things. But it's just a beautiful box. Well, I think also the fact that these three films were. I don't know. It seemed like they are almost considered like lost or irretrievable films, or at least so kind of hopelessly damaged that, you know, we would just have to settle for whatever remnants could be cobbled together. So uh, I'm thinking about the pre, you know, 2010, 2009, whatever that was when this set was released. I think it was actually kind of astonishing. I kind of remember like, oh, they actually got that. Oh, they restored it. Oh, it's a DVD only. Well, it's probably because the films are just so rough that, you know, it doesn't make sense to make them a Blu-ray. So that was the story. But it was, you know, I mean, it really is one of those um, heroic salvage jobs. And, you know, again, I I guess I just look at the influence and the significance of the films and kind of how irreplaceable they are because of what they capture. Uh, I, I guess I do. I will give Paisan my preference just because I think it, the breadth of the story, the variety of environments that were taken into. Uh, yeah, Rome Open City probably has the most kind of conventional appeal as a as a moving, you know, start to finish narrative. But I I I, I really do appreciate Paisan because I I think it just gets you in touch with the with the the large scale of what was going on during that uh, you know tumultuous time in Italy. Uh, but this this is this is the bookend. It, it is what it is, and so um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's just yeah, yeah. It had to be there, well and, said, I, and well I said. and I do feel. I mean, there is. I, I certainly felt a pathos again, going back to my my work with with kids who've just gotten a raw deal in life. Uh, my 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 heart could not fail to go out to this boy who's, you know, 
to use the phrase only following orders you know and and the just the futility of of the the plight that his sister was in her older brother again you know not not absolving him of any of the the gravity of being a, a nazi soldier and and fighting to the bitter end uh, and his cravenness in in not owning up to what he did and even the you know kind of outrage of the fact that he's taken into custody and just kind of like <laughs> you're small fry we're not going to even bother with you you're off the hook and uh you know it's just you know yeah. but again the the just the twistedness of this of this boy intentionally poisoning his father you know what he thinks is maybe an act of mercy or not even a mercy but just doing what he thinks is the right thing because he's been told by his teacher only the strong survive the weak need to be step aside to to make room for the the those who will survive them it's just like ah uh, i mean this you just see this evil corrupted mentality that's being instilled in young people and again different time different place but i think about you know the problem the historic uh you know agony of racism and how it's woven itself into so many aspects and institutions of our society and how many people have been taught that have been intentionally taught that by authoritative adult figures who say view people of certain racial or ethnic characteristics as inferior or undeserving of of equal treatment or deserving of the harsh treatment that that occasionally they experience when you know a police officer abuses them or um or they suffer deprivations of any sort because they're just those types of people. I mean, I just, I, my flesh recoils to think about how much of that teaching continues to go on to, to children, to young people who, you know, for whatever reason, just don't know much better than to just trust what they're being told by the people who are raising them up, caring for them, feeding them and all of that. It's it's kind of infuriating to think about the the dilemmas that our society will continue to have to deal with, even when the protests and current situation settles down. Uh, the problem will not go away. We've we've got lots of work to do, um, but this is a portrait of another society that's just been so badly misguided by very corrupted people in positions of influence and authority. So, you know, you watch a movie like this and say, okay, what do we have to do to dismantle this kind of corruption and, and try to make the future a little bit better than it is right now? Beautifully said. Uh, I would be very close to your ranking, David. I think Paizan is the masterpiece of the trilogy. Controversially, I'm going to put this film in second place just because wow. I continue to grapple with it. It's really worth Rewatching, it's worth considering the architectural ambitions of the Nazi regime. You know, Spears' neoclassical Germania, you know, is um, despite, you know, unfortunately, he did have that ruin value theory that you'd, you'd create buildings that would even look beautiful in ruins, right? They'd be so monumental, they'd be so sturdy. Uh, this does disprove that theory. This place looks like <laughs> junk. <laughs> you know, this place looks absolutely uh, leveled and the the mise-en-scene of that, I think, is, is inescapable, even despite the film's pitfalls and shortcomings. I'm interested in spending more time with this and thinking about this more and having these kind of conversations. Well, if you've ever been in Munich, you will see that Nazi architecture does not is not beautiful and it is not um, 
it's just very cold and militaristic and fascistic and heavy and and it's, it's just not a nice feeling at all in my opinion yeah that's a whole different conversation on that topic i really recommend people check out uh an american film called berlin express that's about a group of people from america and uh Britain and I think Italy, I don't know, a couple other places in Europe um, kind of convening. And there's kind of a film noir plot, but it's all shot, or at least most of it was shot in the rubble of Berlin. And it's really fascinating on that level. When was it made, Scott? Uh, like 1948, yeah. Oh, very cool. Um, I would suggest, especially for fans of Rome Open City, to check out the later Rossellini film, Il Generale. Della Rovere, um, 1959 film that is very much in the same fabric of Rome open city, but it's also about this time period that would fit sort of very nicely into this grouping of films. If you want to see more cool, that will probably, unless we have last thoughts, final thoughts from anybody, I'd like to make time for that. If we have them. No, I think this was a great discussion. Very cool. Well, then I would just like to thank all of you for joining in this morning and before I give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find you online, I will tease the listeners that we do have our next three films plotted out. And so we'll be continuing our discussion next month of more post-war Italian cinema. We're going to focus on the Alienation Trilogy by Michelangelo Antonioni, and the first of which is 1960s Love and Tura. Can't wait. So Scott, where can listeners find you online if they want to find more about you and your work? Uh, on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow and uh, BattleshipPretension.com. David? Uh, I publish most of my stuff through Criterion Cast. Um, I've got a couple episodes in the works um, of this one, of course. And then I'm also a guest on the Purple Noon podcast, which is kind of a relatively recent startup with a couple of young women down in Florida. Just recorded an episode before this one about 12 Angry Men, so I'll steer listeners that way if you want to follow me over there. And then Trevor Barrett and I just started a new series called Inside the Box, where we he and I are going to be talking about box sets from the Criterion Collection. So I suppose the War Trilogy and Ingmar Bergman's uh, Faith Trilogy are probably towards the end of our list now because we've covered those pretty thoroughly uh, here in, in individual episodes. But yeah, we're talking about uh, box sets from the Criterion Collection yeah, kind of as a, as a single unit, kind of like what we did on the Eclipse Viewer some several years ago. We just published an episode on the Stern, uh, Joseph von Sternberg silent classics, already referenced that earlier in the episode. We'll be covering the Apu trilogy probably towards the end of June or early July. And uh, kind of a fun side project as well as my regular work at Criterion Reflections where I'm still working on the films of 1971. And uh, you've all been doing your bits of time and contributions on that project. And so we're kind of in the home stretch. 1971 is almost done with me here. So, uh, yeah, kind of excited to get going on that as well. Very cool. And Arik, what about you? I know you're very busy with fatherhood, but you have anything going on extracurricularly? Well, I, I, not to not to make any, I don't know, whatever. I would encourage all of our listeners to, you know, pay attention to what's happening in the world at this moment. Um, get involved, uh, donate, um, learn, educate, participate. This is, uh, you know, we're having a moment in this country right now that um, this film also kind of relates to. And I, I just want to encourage people to, you know, go check out Black Lives Matter and, um, you know, get involved. Uh, but uh, as for me personally, yeah, I don't know. I, you can follow me if you want, whatever. Um, Daniel Tiger on Twitter, Cinema Gadfly is my 
Criterion website. I don't know. It all seems to me a little um, irrelevant right now. Just go out there, get involved, you know, and to and stay safe. Take care of your family. We're still in the middle of a fucking pandemic, and people need to remember that. So, really good points to sort of tag on that, and also maybe siphon off a little bit of what what David was bringing up. You know, this another thing this film makes us think about is I think suicide and specifically the suicide of the young and which is on the rise in this country um very steadily since 2000 we've seen a dramatic increase of suicides of of the young and teenagers it is the second leading cause of death and um there are underlying reasons for this and some of them are being addressed right now in the streets so i echo what arik has urged everybody to do get involved donate and at least stay informed Thank you, everybody, for listening today, and we'll get you next time.